are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Jordan. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to episode 35, Amelia Earhart, part two. Part deuce. Deuce. Part deuce. We left you on quite a bit of a cliffhanger last time, mm-hmm. and we're here to finish the story. Yeah, yeah. So. It's going to get mysterious. Mysterious. <laughs> okay. Before we get into that, let's do some business like we do every mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. How many downloads we at? 14,187. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. We just, before we started this, we looked at the Instagram, and our first ever post on Instagram was April 19th. So April. in seven months, we've got 14,000 listens. That's pretty good. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I don't know how we are compared to other people, but for me and you, that's good. I think that's good. Just for, I mean, just starting out, I mean. Yeah. Hey. It's not yeah, like it's not like a million, but I mean it's a lot to me. No, yeah, it's a lot to me too. I never thought that fourteen thousand people would ever hear our voice in my lifetime. I thought in seven months we'd have like a thousand, maybe. Yeah. Well, remember whenever we first started, it was like twenty five, and we were like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Yep. So excited. Now so like, yeah, we get like somebody mm-hmm. listening in Canada who'd be like, oh my god, right? Now it's like over fifty five countries. It's crazy. So we're recording this on Thanksgiving. Yes. And we're thankful for you. We are thankful. So thank you for making our dreams of letting 14,187 downloads be heard. Thanks for listening to us be dumb. Yeah. Say stupid shit and mispronounce everything. Everything. <laughs> we were listening back to our Halloween episode, so this is like a correction. I still don't know how to say it, but Halloween episode, we said Sam Hain. Mm-hmm. I still think that's how you should say it. <laughs> yeah, it's how it's spelled. But it's wrong. So we said it wrong, people. Yeah. Shocker. I don't know how to say it right. Something real Nobody funky. Does. Nobody does. Nobody does. And you know that we're real. We are real. And we say shit wrong all the time. We're here for the history and the facts, not the pronunciation. Right. This is not the pronunciation We're game. not, yeah. I'm not a, I don't have a degree in pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, You said uh, pronunciation wrong. I don't so. even have a degree. <laughs> I don't have any degrees. You pronounce pronounce pronunciation <laughs> Yeah, bae. That's what you're getting that's when you it. listen to us, that's folks. Just, yep. You're so, welcome. Yep. The realist in the game. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about a few things here. Website, mm-hmm. mysteryhistorypodcast.com. Yes. You can find all of our episodes, our merch, which George's working very diligently on getting some new stuff out there. Yep. You gotta go check out this clock. Mm, it's cool. It's very cool. So I'm very impressed. So that's time for a mystery. It is time. It's always time for a mystery. So that works perfectly on a clock. Yeah. There's also a shirt that says that. I put it on a I shirt love too. It. That logo on a shirt. Yep. Love it. Love it. Pretty cool. Patreon. Let's talk about our Patreon. Yes. So what are the tiers? So tier one is you get every episode a week early and you also get a 10% discount code to the store. So mm-hmm. you can get yourself a clock for 10% off. Mm-hmm. So and also you can listen to next week's episode right meow right meow, and then tier two is twenty percent off, twenty mm. percent off the clock just saying, and you get the episode a week early, also a bonus episode every single Friday. Yep. So that's four episodes a month extra. Tier one is two dollars. Tier two is five dollars. So for five dollars you can get all this extra more, stuff. Four more episodes and twenty percent off, and you can hear the future. <laughs> So I think that's worth it. Most people don't offer all that stuff to you. Most people can't hear the future, but you can. You can. For $5. Because it's time for a mystery. It is time. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We wanted to shout out. So we have six patrons right now. um, And we love every single one of you. You are the Mistorians. Mm -hmm. 
So we want to shout those people out. Uh, go for it. So we have Jessica, Jessica. D, uh, yeah, D, um, Nicole, Christina, Manuel, and the Let's Adult podcast. Yes, I love them. They are. They are awesome. You should go listen to them. Yep. Um, they're they're great. So yeah, we we have been helping them along with some of their questions. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important in the podcast community to we're not in competition with each other. No. Everybody wants to do good things mm-hmm. and we're going to help each other get there. So like hashtag history is a good one. Mm-hmm. Ghosty girls. Yep. Let's let's adult podcast. Crime and closets. Crime and closets. We got tons of people. So I, we really love the community that we're in. Mm-hmm. And if you need help or if you, you know, just get at us, dog. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I think it's cool to, yeah, because we're all, we're We're all doing doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's fun. I think it's like if people have questions, I think it's fun because we had those questions and we didn't really know who to turn to. We had nobody. uh, Yeah. We didn't know. Yeah. So if you have questions, yeah. Yeah. Armchair, armchair historians. historians. Yep. Look at her. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's tons of people out there that do good stuff. Yeah. For your listening pleasure. That's what it's so. There's so many. It's like hard to find all of them. But mm-hmm. if you, I think it's cool. Like yeah, if we get like a, like yeah, a group of podcasts, we all listen to each other, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, cool to spread that and help and do you know because whenever if you go back and listen to episode one, wow, it was bad. wow, yeah, we had one mic sitting in the middle of the table, mm-hmm. and it's like you hit the table, and it's like you can hear every little bump yep. and every little. It's bad. And we still have things from time to time, like last episode, my phone going off. and Oh, yeah. Or not, Riley, Jordan's dog sneezing or whatever. Yeah, we're not perfect, but that's we've definitely well, gotten think, better. I think that, right, it's the, the quality. Mm-hmm. We, you, I think our voices are, are more quality, but we're not going to edit every little thing out because we're real, and this is real. Yeah, I think people like that. Yeah. Whenever they're like, oh, that's how I would say it. Like, yeah. Not like... Getting every single word right. Like Sam Hain. Yeah. It's like, pronounced Sam Hain in Mystery History Podcast. Okay? Yeah. We're going to get our own dictionary momentarily that'll be for sale on the website. Yeah, I can do that. I can make that happen. So thank you to all the patrons. So I just ordered a bunch of stuff um, to email, or not email, to send out via mail, mm-hmm. like carrier pigeon. To all of these folks. Yeah. Um, so if you want a shout out, if you want some free goodies, mm-hmm. let's let's be uh, <clears throat> let's be in a relationship. Yep. I think it's from now till um, January first, but I'm probably just going to bump it out further. Yeah. If you become a patron, you get no matter what tier, you get a sticker and then a signed copy of a poster from us. Yes. So Manuel, he's been our longest patron. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Manuel, that's coming to you. Mm-hmm. We're sorry that it's taken so long. Um, I'm waiting on this stuff to come in, so I'm hoping by next week I'll be able to get some of this stuff out to the mail uh, for you guys to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And we'd love to see pictures of it. Yeah. And let us know if you like it. What else you'd like? You know what we we wanted this to be a good partnership. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate you, uh, and that's why we do this. Mm -hmm. So the next thing we wanted to do is shout out Murdered by Design again. um, She's a a store, so she has a website, murderedbydesign.square.site. She just posted on her Instagram the Fuck Horses sticker. We've talked about that a couple times. It is the most badass sticker I've ever seen in my life. It is really cool. Um, it's really cool. It's so cool. It's so get you one of those. If you use Mystery History as a promo code, you get 20% off. Mm-hmm. So 
um, so give her some love. She does great stuff. I, I got recently, I think I posted it on our Instagram, the wooden ornaments that I had ordered from her that are like, uh, burned in with all kinds of scary stuff. She threw some extra stuff in there too, like Krampus. She loves Krampus. Um, so those things are really cool. They are cool. They're really the first time I saw them, I like tagged you in them, and you're like, "Oh, I bought those because I didn't know you yeah, bought them." Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, so um, so give her some love. Uh, shop small when you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all in this together with COVID and everything. It's hard for small businesses, so make sure you're giving them some love, especially during the holiday season. Mm-hmm. You know, they work really hard to provide this stuff. So, so try to do what you can for the small businesses out there. Mm-hmm. We are going to read. Uh, we got a couple more reviews. I'm very excited. We're at a 5.0, mm-hmm. 62 ratings. Yep. That's pretty good. That is. So we got three more comments. If you'd like to have your comment read out on the show, just give us a five star review and leave us a comment. Doesn't have to be nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. We like reading them. Um, so Steph is neat. Now I've kn- I know her. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known her for a long time. Uh, She also had a store. I don't know if she still does, but you should check her out on Instagram. She likes dinosaurs. Nice. So I bought, like, a dinosaur necklace from her and some earrings. She's got some cool stuff. So she says, perfect. It's like being a part of the convo with these two. They are real people who are passionate about the topics they cover. I also adore the way they say grandma. Yeah, do we say that funny? I read that. What? How do you say grandma? Grandma. 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 <laughs> Steph, this is for you. Grandma. Grandma. Uh, Grandma time. <laughs> so thank you, Steph. We appreciate you. Uh, the next one is from S-I-S. Well, it's S-I Scorpio. Hmm. So she says... I believe it's a she. Very interesting and great listen. Uh, Been looking for a new podcast and came across this one. Great stories, great voices, a must-have podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For our voices. (laughs) Don't let George, don't be talking about George's calming voice and shit. Yeah, somebody said my voice is soothing. He gets a big head about him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And the last one is from Leanna Do3. She said, "Amazing! I just found this podcast and I'm obsessed. I love the way they talk amongst each other and love that they can crack me up when I least expect it. I highly recommend. This is a way for us to be comedians without having to stand in front of a group of people and look real dumb. Yeah, when I was little, that was like my biggest dream. Being a comedian. Yeah, when I was little, like wouldn't have made it. I want to (laughs) know." <laughs> Fucker. I wouldn't have been on Saturday Night Live like more than anything, and then I realized I'm gonna have stage fright and I'm yeah. just nervous. No, I couldn't do it. No either. way. No way. I mean, I feel like so my job that I currently have, I do a lot of onboarding orientations, and I've definitely grown a lot from talking in a large group of people of like fifty people. So I appreciate that, like mm-hmm. opening me up more. But that's because I know what I'm talking about. Right. I think that's half the battle is just knowing what you're going to say or what you're going to talk about and owning it. Mm-hmm. I also just hate being the center of attention, like even if yeah. it's in a group of people. That was so. Whenever I, I got married, that. that was my biggest thing: is everybody's going to be looking at yep. me up in the front, like it's yep. on me, and I don't like that. No, I, like I like it like being about either. other people. I do too. I'd rather much rather be a bystander. Yeah. Um, one more thing I want to touch on, and then George's got something. So we are trying to to uh, sell out, pretty much, <laughs> like you do when you're in business. We're trying to get sponsored. Mm-hmm. 
because we want eventually for this thing to be making money. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm going to date myself. Good Charlotte. Mm-hmm. I was with them from the beginning and then they sold out and I was so pissed when I was young. I was like, why are you doing this? You're doing good things. But that's the goal Yeah, to be able of to make everyone money. is yep. to be able to make money and live the American dream. Mm-hmm. So we're selling out if we can, we need your help. <laughs> So, help us sell out. Help us sell out. No, it'll still be the same. We still are who we are. We're very real. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need 750 average mm-hmm. listeners in order to get this partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we're about 325, I yes, believe. something like 350. So share if you can. Bring a buddy and a friend. Post on Instagram. Yeah. Just get the, simple, get the yeah. word out there. We're just trying to get some sponsorships to help us bring more to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, give more gifts. Do, you know, do that stuff. We're going to do a, it's Thanksgiving today. We're going to do a Thanksgiving giveaway. Thanks giveaway. Thanks giveaway. So look for that. I mean, it's already probably been happened by the time yeah, you get this. Unless you're a patron and you listen early. But again, I think we said before we want to do a giveaway every month. So. Yes. So this is going to be our... Our thanks giveaway. Yep. And if you share, we also just love seeing people like screenshot and like post the episode they're listening to on Instagram. Yeah. And just tag us. And we love resharing that stuff. So it's cool to. Yeah. Talk to us. Get you, yeah. Have a conversation. We're here to help if we can help <clears throat> you. If we, you want to talk to us, mm-hmm. talk at us. It's fun just, yeah, talking to people. But um, the only, the last thing I have is I just started a small online store. <clears throat> um, it's called the Dayton Collective because we're from Dayton, Ohio, if you didn't know that. And, um, so I'm, <clears throat> I started a campaign called kicks for Dayton and I'm working directly with this charity called shoes for the shoeless, which, uh, provides underprivileged kids with shoes, people that can't otherwise afford them. Um, so cool. yeah. So I have, I have shoes you can buy that says kicks for Dayton. I have, um, shirts, hoodies, and sweaters, I believe, but all the proceeds from that are going to. Straight to them. Mm-hmm. So the, I was going to originally, so for every pair of those bottles, I was going to donate a pair. But I had a phone call with the director of the program, and he said they can buy, they get wholesale items. So for the price of the shoes that I was going to give them, they could buy three pairs of shoes. Oh, wow. That's so, awesome. So you're just going to give them the money so just, and let them do what yeah. they need. Yeah. After talking with them, I was like, yeah, I'll just give you the money, and you can do a lot more with it than I can. So. Yeah. And the shoes that that we have, that George has for sale, they are cool. Yeah. They're like all black Chuck Taylors. Yeah. And then inside of the Converse logo, it has a little circle and it says Kicks for Dayton. Right. It's, they're not like a pair of bowling shoes. They're shoes you can wear every day in no, your pretty, life. They're pretty cool. They yeah. are cool. So, yeah, go go support a small business that's helping people. So get at Jord mm-hmm. and uh, buy some stuff to feed these people. Yep. Cool. Good work. Shanks. I'm proud of you. Shanks. Okay. Anything else we want to talk about? I don't think so. We've bent their ear for 15 minutes. Sorry. That was a long one. That was. Uh, we have a lot to say. Let's get into... Okay, so think about last episode. And we left off was the last known position of Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. It's going to get technical. It's going to get technical. Get there's, technical a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. I'm going to say some <clears throat> stuff wrong. I'm not oh, yeah. good with numbers. Nope. All right. Sure Take it away. All right. So during the flight, Noonan may have been able to do some celestial navigation to determine their position. Uh, the plane would cross the international dateline during the flight. Failing to account for the dateline could account for a one-degree or 60-mile position error. So before the other dude, he was <clears throat> what? 
20 miles? 20 miles, yeah. So this guy's going to be 60 miles. That's crazy. But this is celestial. Yeah, that's kind of, that's a gamble. Yeah, you don't know. Orion's belt could be many places in the sky. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? That's all they used to do for, like, people that left Europe to get to America. Like, that's all they had was celestial navigation. Yeah, so what do you do? Just follow the North Star, right? Yeah, follow the stars. Isn't that what, like, if you got lost in the woods and your compass broke? Yeah. Isn't that what they always say? The North Star, yeah. But where's that going to take you? North. North. (laughs) (laughs) What's north? You don't know. Is that the way you want to go? You want to go south? I don't know. But from that, you can find your other directions. That's true. Yeah. But that doesn't make sense to me either. Why? Because if you're looking at it from the left, how do you know where north is? It's always north. I don't get it. That's why it's the north. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Polaris. I didn't do well with the... Planetarium stuff. Our school, our middle school, had a planetarium in it. Pretty dope. Do you know what straight up in the sky is called? Uh, no. The Zenith. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, like the Disney show? Like the old TVs. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay. Man, we're off on tangents already. Yep. We're one paragraph in. Okay. So in preparation for the trip to Howland Island, the U.S. Coast Guard had sent the cutter USCGC Atalska 1929 to the island. The cutter offered many services such as ferrying news reports to the island, but it also had communication and navigation functions. The plane was the plan was the cutter could communicate with Earhart's aircraft via radio, transmit a radio homing signal to make it easier to find Howland Island without precise celestial navigation cuz you got that 60 degree window. Uh, do radio direction finding if your heart used her 50 kilowatt kilohertz kilohertz transmitter used an experimental high frequency direction finder for your hearts of voice transmissions and use her boilers to make smoke creating a dark column of smoke that can be seen over the horizon huh. that's pretty cool that's interesting yeah all of the navigation methods would fail to guide your heart to howland island bummer bummer the Electra had radio equipment for both communication and navigation, but details about the equipment are not clear. The Electra failed to establish two-way radio communications with USCGC Atasca and failed to radio locate the Atasca. Many explanations have been proposed for those failures. The plane had a modified Western Electric Model 13C transmitter. The 50-watt transmitter was crystal-controlled and capable of transmitting on 500 kilohertz uh, 3105 kilohertz and 6210 kilohertz. Crystal control means that the transmitter cannot be turned to other frequencies. The Hmm. plane could transmit only those three frequencies. The transmitter had been modified at the factory to provide the 500 kilohertz capabilities. Wow. I wonder why that is. Just so you don't bump it on accident and like get totally. Yeah, so you can't find it. Yeah. I guess it has three channels. That's pretty smart. You think that only make it one channel though? So you're always on the right channel. Right. I guess. Well, they get stronger, so maybe that's why. If you're farther away, you can but see still, which one. You think they just do the biggest one, just keep it on the biggest one. Yeah. The plane had a modified Western Electric Model 20B receiver. Ordinarily, the receiver covered four frequency bands, 188 to 420, 550 to 1500, 1500 to 4000, and 4000 to 10,000. Yeah, why wouldn't they just use that one? Yeah. Uh, the, the receiver was modified to lower the frequencies in the second band to 485 to 1200 kilohertz. Mm-hmm. Uh, this That modica- modification allowed the reception of 500 
300 kilohertz signals. Such signals were used for marine distress calls and radio navigation. The Model 20B receiver had two antenna inputs, a low-frequency antenna input and a high-frequency antenna input. The the receiver's band selector also selects which antenna input is used. The first two bands use the low-frequency antenna, and the last two bands select the high-frequency antenna. It is unknown whether the Model 20B receiver had a beep-frequency oscillator that would enable the detection of continuous wave transmissions such as Morse code and radio location beacons. Neither Earhart, Earhart nor Noonan were capable of using Morse code. And we talked about that last episode. Yeah. I feel like that should be a requirement. In flight school or something, yeah. Because yeah. that's, especially back then. Like, I feel like that'd be hard to learn, though. It's like small. Yeah. Like beep, 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 beep. Yeah. yeah. Beep. That was like in the... Um, I think it was in the movie Pearl Harbor. Like, they used to use that all the time. Oh, yeah, like that's the how they military. communicate. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know, yeah, you think... Or at least know, like, an SOS signal. Yeah, the SOS one you need to know. But right. I think they talk back. Yeah, they do, So and it's you like don't you know don't what know the what hell they're, they're yeah. saying. But at least you get your signal out there. And at least you know somebody heard you. Right, yeah, that's true. They relied on voice communications. Manning, who was on the first world uh, flight attempt, but not the second, was skilled at Morse code and had acquired... An FCC aircraft radio telegraph license for 15 words per minute mm-hmm. in March of 1937, just prior to the start of the first flight. Wow. 15 words a minute. I type like 120 words per minute, <laughs> but that's not beeps. No, that'd be hard. I feel like 15 words per minute, beep wise, that's pretty good. <laughs> the person on the other end's like, slow the fuck down. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know said. what you're saying. <laughs> um, kind of like. You know, whenever you're a little fluent in Spanish and yeah. you talk so fast, you're like, hold oh, on, I, I heard Gracias. pantalones, <laughs> so you need to get some pants. I just know, donde esta el baño? Where's the bathroom? Yep, but if they tell me, I don't know where that is. I need some right. finger points. <laughs> right. Landmarks. <laughs> and donde esta cerveza? Where's the beer and where's the toilet? Um, a second automatic radio direction finder receiver, a prototype Hooven radio compass, had been installed on in the plane in October 1936, but that receiver was removed before the flight to save weight. Mistake. Mm-hmm. The Hooven radio compass was replaced with a Bendex coupling unit that allowed a conventional loop antenna to be attached to an existing receiver. The loop antenna is visible above the cockpit on Earhart's plane. All- Alternatively, the loop antenna may have been connected to a Bendex RA1 auxiliary receiver with direction to finding um, finding capability up to 15 kilohertz. 1500. Not- 1500, excuse me. Uh, It's not clear that such a receiver was installed, and if it were, it may have been removed before the flight. Long and Long describes Joe Gurr training Earhart to use a Bendex. What? Gurr? Joe Gurr. Joe Gurr. (laughs) (laughs) To use a Bendex receiver and other equipment to tune radio station KFI on 640 kilohertz and determine its direction. Whichever receiver was used... Uh, there are pictures of Earhart's radio direction finder loop antenna and its five-band Bendix coupling unit. Uh, the details of the loop and its coupler are not clear. Long and Long claim the coupling unit adapted a standard RDF-1B loop to the RA-1 receiver, and that system was limited to the frequencies below 1430. Um, during the first world flight attempts leg uh, from Honolulu to Howland, Atasco was supposed to transmit a CW homing beacon at either 375 or 500 kilohertz. At least twice during the flight, Earhart failed to determine the radio bearings at 7,500 kilohertz. 
if RDF equipment was not suitable for that frequency, then attempting such a fix would be operator error and fruitless. However, the earlier seven-band Navy RDF 1A covered 500 to 8,000 kilohertz. Wow. That's a huge That's a band. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. The later three-band DU-1 covered 200 to 1,600 kilohertz. It is not clear where the RDF-1B or Earhart's coupler performance sits between those two units. In addition, the RDF-1A and DU-1 coupler designs have other differences. The intention is to have the ordinary receiver antenna connected to the coupler's antenna input. From there, it is passed on to the receiver. In the RDF-1A design, the coupler must be powered on for that design to function or for that design function to work. In the later DU1 design, the coupler needs not to be powered. Hmm. That's confusing. That is confusing. Why wouldn't they just all design them the same? Right. That's weird that you have to learn different radio. I mean, I guess it's probably It's very involved. Yeah. I don't still. know nothing about kilohertz. This is yeah. This is probably boring for people, but I mean, it's interesting. It is interesting. There's a lot of uh, technicalities going on, but... Either way, it's like the Titanic. You watch the movie and you hope for something else different to happen, but it's not going to end well. You know the ending, but you hope it's not the ending. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There were problems with the RDF equipment during the world flight. During the transatlantic leg of the flight from Brazil to Africa, the RDF equipment did not work. The radio direction finding station at Darwin expected to be in contact with Earhart when she arrived there, but Earhart stated that the RDF was not functioning. The problem was a blown fuse. During a test flight at Laos, um, Earhart could hear radio signals, but she failed to obtain an RDF bearing. While apparently near Howland Island, Earhart reported receiving a 7,500 kilohertz signal from Itasca, but we say I'm saying that wrong every single time. I read. <laughs> uh, but she was unable to obtain an RDF bearing. That'd be just scary. Yeah. To just, just be out there and like, I don't know where I am. Nothing. That's mm-hmm. so. That's what she liked, though, Yeah, I think. The antennas and their connection on the Electra are not certain. A dorsal V antenna was added by Bell Telephone Laboratories. There had been a trailing wire antenna for 500 kilohertz, but the Luke Field accident collapsed both landing gear and wiped off the ventral antennas. After the accident, the trailing wire was removed. The dorsal antenna was modified, and the ventral antenna was installed. It is not certain, but it is likely that the dorsal antenna was only connected to the transmitter, uh, and the ventral antenna was only connected to the receiver. Once the second world flight was started, problems with radio reception were noticed while flying across the U.S. Pan Am, uh, or across the U.S. Pan Am technicians may have modified the ventral antennas while the plane was in Miami. At Lay, problems with transmission quality on 6210 kilohertz were noticed. Once the flight took off from Lay, Lay did not receive radio messages on 6210 uh, until four hours later. Lay's last reception was at 5:18 p.m. and was a strong signal. Lay received after that, or re- Lay received nothing after that. Presumably, the plane switched to 3105. Atasca heard Earhart on 3105, but did not hear her on 6210. TIGHAR postulates that the ventral receiving antenna was scraped off while Electra taxied the runway at Lay. Consequently, the Lay or the Electra lost its ability to receive HF transmissions. Bummer. Wonder how they got scraped off. Oh no, that's scary though. One little thing could like just rip it off, and then you, you just have no transmission. Mm-hmm. That's so scary. 
The USCGC Atasca was on the station at Howland. Its task was to communicate with Earhart's Electra and guide them to the island once they arrived in the vicinity. Noonan and Earhart expected to do voice communications on 3105 during the night and 6210 during the day. Through a series of misunderstandings or errors, the final approach to Howland Island using radio navigation was not successful. Fred Noonan had earlier written about problems affecting the accuracy of the radio direction finding and navigation. Another cited cause of possible confusion was that the Itasca and Earhart planned their communication schedule using time systems set a half hour apart, with Earhart using Greenwich Civil Time and the Itasca using a Naval Time Zone designation system. I feel like that would have been very easy to fix. Yeah. That's... You just all go on one <clears throat> time yeah. zone. Before you leave. Let's, let's iron just, this out. Yeah, let's just make everything. She's probably just eager to go. I'm sure. She didn't seem like a planner, just more of a doer. Yeah. The Electra expected a task to transmit signals that the Electra could use as an RDF beacon to find the Atasca. In theory, the plane could listen for the signal while rotating its loop antenna. A short minimum indicates the direction of the RDF beacon. The Electra's RDF equipment had failed due to a blown fuse during an earlier leg flying to Darwin. The fuse was replaced. Near Howland, Earhart could hear the transmission from Atasca on 7500 kilohertz, but she was unable to determine a minimum, so she could not determine a direction to Atasca. Earhart was also... Uh, unable to determine a minimum during the RDF test at Ley. One likely theory is that Earhart's RDF equipment did not work at 7,500 kilohertz. Most RDF equipment at the time was not designed to work above 2,000 kilohertz. Wow. That's quite a bit higher. Yeah, because there was 10,000 yeah. on one of them. Hmm. When operated above their design frequency, loop antennas lose their directionality. Wow. This is just a big old cluster. It is. Of things that could have probably been fixed pretty mm. easy. Yeah. Atasca had its own RDF equipment, but that equipment did not work about above 550 kilohertz, so Atasca could not determine the direction to the Electra's HF transmissions at 310 and 6210 kilohertz. The Electra had been equipped to transmit a 500 kilohertz signal that Atasca could use for radio direction finding, but some of that equipment had been removed. The equipment originally used a long trailing wire antenna while the plane was in flight. The wire antenna would be paid out at the tail, efficient transmissions all 500 kilohertz needing a long antenna. <laughs> the antenna was bulky and heavy, so the trailing wire antenna was removed to save weight. Saving weight does nothing if you can't get to where you need to go. Yeah, because earlier they talked about how much fuel they had, and they, they didn't even fill it up the whole way. Right, and they so added like, another body because it was less than the, the the gas. Right, yeah, so it's they're thinking overthinking everything. If nothing else had been done, the plane would have been unable to transmit an RDF signal that Atasca could use. Such a modification was made, but without voice communication from Atasca to the plane, the ship could not tell to use its 500 kilohertz signal. Even if Atasca could get a bearing to the plane, the Atasca could not tell the plane that bearing, so the plane could not head to the ship. Dang. Some sources have noted that Earhart's apparent lack of understanding of her direction finding system, which had been fitted to the aircraft just prior to the flight. The system was equipped with a new receiver from Bendix that operated on five wavelength bands, marked one to five. The loop antenna was equipped with a tunable loading coil that changed the effective length of the antenna to allow 
to work efficiently at different wavelengths. <clears throat> Excuse me. The tuner on the antenna was also marked with five settings, one to five. But critically, these were not the same frequency bands as the corresponding bands on the radio. What why would the they, heck? Yeah, why would they even do that? <clears throat> That's confusing just reading it. Yeah. So, like, I couldn't imagine Nothing trying to. Up. Yeah. I'm on two and two, but they're not talking to each other. Right. Those two were close enough for the settings one, two, three, but the higher frequency settings four and five were entirely different. The upper bands four and five could not be used for direction finding. Earhart's only training system or training on the system was a brief introduction by Joe Gurr. Joe Gurr. <laughs> guy, Joe Gurr, uh, at the Lockheed factory, and the topic had not come up. A card displaying the band settings of the antenna was mounted, so it was not visible. <laughs> Classic. Gurr explained that higher frequency bands would only or would offer better accuracy and longer range. So she probably just kept it on those. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Makes it sense. Yeah, it does. It was, she was trying <clears throat> yeah. to make a smart yeah. thing. That's okay. man. Motion picture evidence from Lay suggests that an antenna mounted underneath the fuselage may have been torn off from the fuel-heavy electra during taxi or takeoff from Lay's turf runway, though no antenna was reported found at Lay. Don Dwiggins, in his <laughs> biography, <laughs> Don Dwiggins, uh, in his biography... <laughs> Of Paul Mance uh, noted that the aviators had cut off their long wire antenna due to the annoyance of having to crank it back into the aircraft after each use. It seems like, too, I've never noticed that there's so much shit that could be torn off during takeoff or taxiing. Yeah, especially on the smaller planes. It flies off. Yeah, that's scary. Think about if you get in a storm up there, too. It's like, I'm sure pieces are just ripped off with duct tape, I'm sure. Man. During Earhart and Noon's approach to Howland Island, the Itasca received a strong and clear voice transmission from Earhart identifying as KHAQQ, but she apparently was unable to hear voice transmissions back from the ship. Signals from the ship were also used for direction finding, implying that the aircraft's direction finder was also not functional. The first calls, routine reports stating that the weather was cloudy and overcast, were received at 2.45 and just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd. These calls were broken up by static, but at this point, the aircraft would still be a long distance from Howland. At 6.14, another call was received stating the aircraft was within 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Earhart began whistling into the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to home in on. That's smart. (laughs) That is smart. It was at this point that the radio operators on the Itasca realized that the RDF system could not tune into the aircraft's 3105 frequency. Radioman Leo Bellarts later commented, that he was sitting there sweating blood because I couldn't do a darn thing about it. That sucks. Yeah, it does. A similar call asked for a bearing uh, was received at 6.45 a.m. where Earhart estimated they were 100 miles out. An Atesca radio log um, at 7.30 to 7.40 a.m. states, Earhart on Northwest SCZ running out of gas, only a half hour left, can't hour us at all. Um, We... Our, her, and are sending on 3105 ES 500, same time, constantly. So these are kind of broken up because they're just kind of... Here's another one. Another radio log um, at 742 states, KHAQQ, CLNG, Itasca, we must be on you, but we cannot see you. Gas is running low, been able to 
but unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Ugh. It hurts. That's Here it comes. That's, yeah, not good. Earhart's 758 transmission said she couldn't hear the Atasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. This transmission was reported uh, by the Atasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but said she was unable to determine their direction. Because she didn't know fucking Morse code. Yeah. This that is sucks. this is a cautionary tale. Yeah, learn Morse code, people. Learn you know it. it's way outdated. Learn it. Learn it. In her last known transmission at eight forty three a.m., Earhart broadcast: "We are on the line one five seven three three seven. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on sixty two ten kilocycles. Wait." However, a few moments later. She was back on the same frequency with a transmission that was logged as questionable. We are running online north and south. Earhart's transmission seemed to indicate she and Noonan believed that they had reached Howland's charted position, which was incorrect by about five nautical miles. Um, the Tasca used her oil-fired burners, boilers to generate smoke for a period of time, but the flyers apparently did not see it. The many scattered clouds in the area around Howland Island must have been sighted as a problem. Their dark shadows on the ocean surface may have almost been indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat profile. Fuck. It's like she's right right there. there. God. That's so frustrating. And, like, think about how many, like, factors. If she knew Morse code, it would have been all right. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't cloudy, she would have been okay. Uh If that guy would have been a little bit better of a navigator. Right. It would have been okay. Maybe if they, yeah, just didn't switch the navigators out. And the whole radio. Yeah. Like, if you just could have been able to talk to each other. And who cares about weight? Yeah. You should have kept that shit in your plane. Man, that's so, uh, so close. Hmm. Whether any post-loss radio signals were received from Earhart and Noonan remains unclear. If transmissions were received from the Electra, most, if not all, were weak and hopelessly gar- garbled. Earhart's voice transmission to Howland were on 3105 kilohertz, a frequency restricted in the United States by the FCC, nav- uh, FCC to aviation use. This frequency was thought to be not fit for broadcast over great distances. When Earhart was cruising at altitude in midway between Ley and Howland, over 1,000 miles, neither station heard her scheduled transmission of 8.15. Moreover, the 50-watt transmitter used by Earhart was attached by less than the optimum length V-type antenna. Oi. So just like cutting corners everywhere they can. Yep. The last voice transmission received on Howland Island from Earhart indicated she and Noonan were flying <clears throat> along a line of position, uh, which Noonan would have calculated and drawn on a chart as passing through Howland. After all contact was lost with Howland Island, attempts were made to reach the flyers with both voice and Morse code transmissions. Operators across the Pacific and the United States may have heard signals from the downed Electra, but they were unintelligible or weak. Fuck. Some of these reports of transmissions were later determined to be hoaxes, but others were deemed authentic. Bearings taken by Pan American Airways stations suggest signals originating from several locations, including Gardner Island, 360 miles to the south-southeast. It was noted at the time that these signals were from Earhart and Noonan. They must have been on land with the aircraft since water would have otherwise shouted or shorted out the electric electrical system. Sporadic signals were reported four or five days after the disappearance, but none yielded any understandable information. 
The captain of the USS Colorado later said, There is no doubt many stations were calling to the Earhart plane on the plane's frequency, some by voice and others by signals. All of these added to the confusion and doubtfulness of the authenticity of the reports. Beginning approximately one hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the USCGC Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful search north and west of Howland Island based on initial assumptions after transmissions from the aircraft. The United States Navy soon joined the search and over a period of three days sent available resources to search the area in the vicinity of Howland Island. The initial search by the Itasca involved running up the 157 to 337 line position to the north-northwest from Howland Island. The Itasca then searched the area to the immediate northeast of the island, corresponding to the area yet wider than the area searched to the northwest. Based on the bearings of several supposed Earhart radio transmissions, some of the search efforts were directed to a specific position on a line of 281 degrees from Helen Island without evidence of the flyers. Four days after Earhart's last verified transmission on July 6, 1937, the captain of the battleship Colorado received orders from the commandment 14th Naval District to take over all Naval and Coast Guard units to coordinate search efforts. So literally everybody was trying to find them. Right. Later search efforts were directed to the Phoenix Islands, south of Howland Island. A week after the disappearance, naval aircraft from the Colorado flew over several islands in the group, including Gardner Island, which had been uninhabited for over 40 years. The subsequent report on Gardner read, Here, signs of recent inhabitation were clear, clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answering wave from possible inhabitants, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. At the western end of the island, a tramp steamer, of about 4,000 tons, lay high and almost dry head onto the coral beach with her back broken into two places. Um, the lagoon at Gardner looked sufficiently deep and certainly large enough so that a seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction from wh- or with little, to, uh, with little, if any, difficulty. Given a chance, it is believed that Miss Earhart could have landed her aircraft in this lagoon and swum or waded ashore. They also found Gardner's shape and size recorded on charts were wholly inaccurate. Other Navy search efforts were, again, directed north, west, and southwest of Howland Island. Based on the possibility of the Electra had ditched and was ditched in the ocean, was afloat, or that aviators were in the emergency raft. That's what I don't understand, is that you knew you were running low on fuel, you went down to 1,000 feet, you would think she would be able to stick a water landing and then at least, if anything, be just floating in the ocean. Yeah, but that'd be hard to see from a plane. If they're just like flying. Yeah, but they got the Navy. Yeah, Get them that's boats true. out that's there. True. You think the raft would be like a bright Yellow. color? Yeah. yeah. The official search efforts lasted until July 19th, 1937. At $4 million, the Dollars. The air and sea search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive in U.S. history up to that time, but search and rescue techniques during the era were, were rudimentary, and some of the search was based on erroneous assumptions and flawed information. 
Official uh, reporting of the search effort was influenced by individuals weary about how their roles in looking for an American hero might be reported by the press. Despite an unprecedented search by the United States Navy and Coast Guard, no physical evidence of Earhart, Noonan, or the Electra were found. That's crazy. That is just But gone. I mean, I guess if you think about it, the ocean's pretty big. Yeah. The aircraft carrier USS Lexington, the battleship USS Colorado, the Itasca, the Japanese oceanographic survey vessel Kushu, and the Japanese seaplane tender Kamo searched for seven, six or seven days each, covering 150,000 square miles. That's crazy. But they said, that's what I don't understand, they said that they were going north and south. Mm-hmm. Like, to the island. Yeah. So you think they'd either be... Somewhere they just stay on there. that line. Yeah. They just kept saying, like, east and west. Right. It's like they said they were going north and south. So you Well, think they, they don't would... know where the hell they were going, obviously. That's true. Yeah, that's true. They don't know if they were... That's true. Immediately after the end of the official search, Putnam financed a private search by local authorities of nearby Pacific Islands and waters, concentrating on the Gilberts. In late July 1937, Putnam chartered two small boats, and while he remained in the United States, directed a search of the Phoenix Islands, Christmas Island, Fanning Island, the Gilbert Islands, and the Marshall Islands. But no trace of the Electra or its occupants were found. Poor thing. Can you imagine? That is sad. Yeah. Back in the United States, Putnam acted to become a trustee of Earhart's estate so that he could pay for the search and searches and related bills. In probate court in Los Angeles, Putnam requested to have the declared death in absentia, seven-year waiting period waived so that he could manage Earhart's finances. As a result, Earhart was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939. Seven-year waiting period? That's a long fucking time. That is a long time. Because everything gets frozen. Yeah, just because put in limbo. That's kind of, wow. that's, that's way too long, I feel. <clears throat> there had been considerable speculation on what happened to Earhart and Noonan. Most historians hold to the simple crash-and-sink theory, but a number of other possibilities have been proposed, including several conspiracy theories. Oh. <laughs> now you're talking our language. <laughs> Some have suggested that Earhart and Noonan survived and landed elsewhere, but were either never found or killed, making an in-route location like Tarawa. Tarawa? Tarawa? Unlikely. Proposals have included the uninhabited Garter Island from the vicinity of Howland, the Japanese-controlled Marshall Islands at the close point of Atoll, and the Japanese-controlled Northern Marina Islands. Let's get into some theories. The crash and sink theory. Many researchers believe that Earhart and Noonan ran out of fuel while searching for Howland Island, ditched at sea, and died. The plane would have carried enough fuel to reach Howland with some extra to spare. The extra fuel would cover some contingencies such as headwinds and searching for Howland. The plane could fly a compass, or yeah, could fly a compass toward Howland through the night. In the morning, the time of apparent sunrise would allow the plane to determine its line of position. Mm-hmm. From that line, the plane could determine how much further it must travel before reaching a parallel sun line that ran through Howland. At 6.14 a.m. Atasca time, Earhart estimated they were 200 miles away from Highland. As the plane uh, clo- got closer to Howland, it is expected to be in radio contact with the Atasca. With radio contact, the plane should be able to use radio direction finding, RDF, to head directly for Atasca and Howland. Unfortunately, the plane was not receiving a radio signal from Atasca, so it would be unable to de- determine the RDF bearing to the ship. 
Although Atasca was receiving HF radio signals from the plane, it did not have HF RDF equipment, so it could not determine a bearing to the plane. The communications going to the plane were almost non-existent. Consequently, the plane was not directed to Halland. It was left on its own with little fuel. Presumably, the plane reached the parallel sun line and started searching for Halland on that line of position. At 7.42 a.m., Earhart reported, We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Gas is running low. Have been able, unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. At 8.43 a.m., Earhart reported, We are on the line 157337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. Between Earhart's low, uh, low on fuel message at 7.42 and her last confirmed message at 8.43, her signal remained con- consistent, indicating that she never left the Halland Island immediate area or that she had the fuel to do so. The U.S. Coast Guard made this determination by tracking her signal strength as she approached the island, noting signal levels from her reports of 200 and 100 miles out. There, uh, these reports were roughly 30 minutes apart, providing vital ground speed clues. Based on the facts and lack of additional signals from Earhart, the Coast Guard first responders initiated the search. Um, initiating the search concluded that she ran out of fuel somewhere very close and north of Highland. Yes. Captain Lawrence Safford, who was responsible for the interwar mid-Pacific strategic direction finding net and the decoding of the Japanese purple cipher messages from the attack on Pearl Harbor, began a lengthy analysis of the Earhart flight during the 1970s. His research included the intricate radio transmission documentation. Safford came to the conclusion, poor planning, worse execution. (laughs) Yeah. Rear Admiral... Richard Black, who was in an administrative charge of Howland Island Airstrip and was present in the radio room on the Itasca, asserted in 1982 that the Electra went to the sea about 10 a.m. July 2, 1937, not far from Howland. British aviation historian Roy Nesbitt interpreted evidence in the contemporary accounts and Putnam's correspondence and concluded Earhart's Electra was not fully fueled at lay. William L. Prometheus, the navi- <laughs> What? Polymus. Prometheus. Prometheus. Man. The navigator. I say what I want to say. Prometheus. They had a navigator Pol- in that Polymus. movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, both of them didn't end good, huh? Nope. The navigator on Anne Pellegrino's 1967 flight that followed Earhart and Noonan's original flight path studied navigational tables for July 2nd, 1937, and though Noonan may have miscalculated the single-line approach intended to hit Howland. Fucking Prometheus. Prometheus. <laughs> Bet you didn't know Prometheus was going to be here. Oh, that's funny. Um... David Jordan, a former Navy submariner and ocean engineer specializing in deep-sea recoveries, has claimed any transmissions attributed to Gardner Island were false. Though his company, Nauticos, he extensively searched a 1,200-square-mile quadrant north of the, north and west of Howland. Um, during the two deep-sea sonar expeditions, 2002 and 2006, which were a total cost of $4.5 million, uh, he found nothing. Not a thing. For $4.5 million. The search locations were derived from the line of position 157337 broadcast by Earhart on July 2nd, 1937. Nevertheless, Elgin Long's interpretations have led 
Jordan, to conclude, the analysis of the, all the data we have, the fuel analysis, the radio calls, and other things, tells me she went into the water off Halland. Earhart's stepson, George Palmer Putnam Jr., has been quoted as saying he believes the plane just ran out of gas. Yeah. Susan Butler, author of Earhart's biography, East to Dawn, says that she thinks the aircraft went to the ocean out of sight of Howland Island and rests in the seafloor at a depth of 17,000 feet. Dang, that's so fucking deep. That is deep. Wow. Tom D. Crouch, senior curator of the National Air and Space Museum, has said that Earhart and Noonan's Electra is 18,000 feet down and may even yield a range of artifacts that could rival the findings of the Titanic. Huh. Adding that the mystery is a part of what keeps us interested. In part, we remember her because I remember her because she's our favorite missing person. That's somebody I don't want to be. That's pretty dark, but it's true. Yeah. That's why we're talking about her. Because yep. that's pretty wild. Okay, so now we're going to get into the Gardner Island hypothesis. Dun dun dun. Mm. Oh man, Nikamaru. Which is the name of Gardner Island now. Yes. Or, yeah, it is now. Gardner Island's easier to say, yeah. so we're just going to stick with that. <laughs> the Gardner Island hypothesis assumes that Earhart and Noonan, having not found Howl Island, would not waste time searching for Howland. Instead, they would turn to the south and look for other islands. The 157337 radio transmission suggests they flew a course of 157 degrees that would take them past Baker Island. If they missed Baker Island, they sometimes... Then sometime later, they would fly over Phoenix Island, now part of the Republic of Kabatu, about 350 nautical miles south-southwest, or I'm sorry, south-southeast of Howland Island. The Gardner Island hypothesis has the plane making it to the Gardner Island, uh, which is one of the Phoenix Islands. Hmm. A week after Earhart disappeared, Navy planes from the USS Colorado, which had sailed from Pearl Harbor, searched for Gardner Island, or searched Gardner Island. The plane saw signs of recent habitation in the November 1929 wreck of the SS Norwich City, but did not see any signs of Earhart's plane or people. After the plane ended its search, G.G. Putnam um, undertook the search of the Phoenix Group and other islands, but nothing was found. In October 1937, Eric Bevington and Henry E. Maud visited Gardner, with some potential settlers. A group walked uh, all the way around the island, but did not find a plane or other evidence. During this visit, uh, visit, during this visit, Bevington took a picture of the SS Norwich city wreck. In 2010, Jeff Glickman, an expert in image processing, claimed that the small portion of a 75-year-old picture shown um, showed what looked like landing gear stuck out of the water. A 2019 search of the island suggests that the object in the photo resembles rocks. Hmm. Classic mix-up. <laughs> Rocks are landing gear. <laughs> Who's to say? In December 1938, laborers landed on the island and started constructing the settlement. In late 1939, USS Bushnell did a survey of the island. It's believed that the Bushnell is the search of the source of the navigational sextant box found on the island in 1940. Around April 1940, a skull was discovered and buried, but British colonial officer Gerald Gallagher did not learn of it until September. Gallagher did a more thorough search of the Discovery Island, including looking for artifacts such as rings. The search found more bones, a bottle, a shoe, and a sextant box. 
On September 23, 1940, Gallagher radioed his superiors that he had found a skeleton, possibly that of a woman. I don't know how you know that. Yeah, I don't know how you just... <laughs> Looks like a woman Possibly. to me. Could have it's been. It's either a woman or a man. 50-50. <laughs> Along with an old-fashioned sexton box under a tree on the island's southeast corner. Gallagher stated the bones look more than four years old to me, but there seems to be a very slight chance that this may be the remains of Amelia Earhart. Yeah. He was ordered to send the remains to Fiji on 4 April 1941. Dr. D.W. Hoodless of the Central Medical School. Where are they finding these people? I don't trust that guy. (laughs) um, Examined the bones, took measurements, and wrote a report. Using Carl Persons formulas for stature and the length of the femur, tibula, and humerus, Hoodless concluded that the person was about 5 feet 5.5 inches tall. Hoodless wrote that the skeleton could be that of a short, stocky, muscular European or even a half-caste or person of mixed European descent. Hmm. However, Earhart's 1930 pilot license states that she was 5 feet 8 inches and 118 pounds. Hoodless also wrote, it may be definitely stated that this skeleton is that of a male. Hoodless further stated, owing to the weather-beaten condition of all the bones, it's impossible to be dogmatic in regard to the age of a person at the time of death. But I'm in the opinion that he was not less than 45 years of age and that probably he was older, say between 45 to 55 years. Earhart was 39 and 11 months when she disappeared. Hoodless offered to make more detailed measurements if needed, but suggested that any further examination be done by the Anthropological Department at Sydney University. These bones were misplaced in Fiji long ago and cannot be reexamined. How do you just lose bones? What? Misplaced? I would be so pissed. I bet that ghost of that poor person is haunting some people right now. That is. Oh, you mean those bones? Uh, They're around here somewhere. (laughs) I misplaced them, you know. One of these boxes. What the fuck? Authorities also investigated the sextant box. Sir Harry Charles Luke. What a name. That's way too many names. That is. Harry Charles Luke. That's a, wow. Three first names. (laughs) Wow. Commissioner of the Western Pacific provided that the box to be of an expert uh, aviation navigator, Harold Gaddy. On August 8, 1941, Luke summarized Gaddy's conclusions as the box is English, is of some age, and does not consider that it could in any circumstances have been the sextant box used in the modern trans-Pacific aviation. <laughs> During World War II, U.S. Coast Guard, Loran, Unit 92, a radio navigation station built in the summer and fall of 1944, and operational from mid-November 1944 until mid-May 1945, was located on Gardner Island's southeast end. Dozens of U.S. Coast Guard personnel were involved in the construction and operation, but mostly forbidden from leaving the small base or having contact with the Gilbertese colonists then on the island, and no artifacts uh, were known to relate to Earhart. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery began an investigation of the Earhart Noonan disappearance and since then has sent 10 research expeditions to Gardner Island. They suggested Earhart and Noonan may have flown without further radio transmission for two and a half hours along the line of position. Earhart noted in her last transmission received at Howland. Then found the then-uninhabited Gardner Island, landed the Electra on an extensive reef flat near the wreck of a large freighter. 
the SS Norwich City, on the northwest side of the atoll, and ultimately perished. In 2012, a photograph taken in October 1937 of the reef at Gardner Island after her disappearance was enhanced. According to the analysis who viewed it, a blurry object sticking out of the water in the left corner of the black and white photo is consistent with the strut and wheel of a Lockheed Electra landing gear. Damn. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So say there could have been a crash near an island. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you, like, do a deep sea expedition and see if you could find anything? If shit's sticking out of the water, yeah, do they just need to to wade in a little bit and, like, start seeing if there's fucking parts of planes laying around? Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I I'm not a scientist. If I were with those, like, search parties, I would go to the islands, not in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Because I feel like she would have, she was flying at a thousand somewhere. feet, so she, she could see. She could have seen it. Yeah. She would have tried to get there. Yeah. I and wouldn't just, that be sad if she actually made it to Gardner Island and they just didn't have the resources to yeah. be able to survive and died? But if it was five years later in 1944, she'd have been fine. Right. Because there's nobody there whenever she landed there. Uh-huh. That's crazy. So Tighar's uh, research has produced a range of archaeological and anecdotal evidence supporting this hypothesis. Tighar has sent a number of expeditions to Gardner Island looking for evidence. Although they have found nothing inclusive, expeditions include ones in 2007, 2010, 2012, and 2017. Artifacts discovered by Tighar on Gardner Island have concluded improvised tools, an aluminum panel, possibly from an Electra, uh, made using 1930s manufacturing specifications, an oddly cut piece of clear plexiglass, the same thickness and curvature of an Electra window, and a size 9 cat's paw heel dating from the 1930s. Seems pretty If I ever conclusive. disappear, I don't want these people looking for me. <laughs> it goes on to say, which resembles Earhart's footwear and the world flight photos. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty fucking... Well, if you're taking a picture and somebody's examining the picture and sees something behind you in the picture that could say that the plane had been there, mm-hmm. you're not looking very hard. Nope. Why are you taking pictures? <laughs> like, this oh, isn't a selfie plane. moment. <laughs> this is a, let's find uh, yeah. Amelia Earhart. Recently rediscovered photos of Earhart's Electra just before departure in Miami show an aluminum panel over the window on the right side. Rick Gillespie, head of Tigar, claimed they found the aluminum panel artifact has the same dimensions and rivet pattern as the one shown in the photo to a high degree of certainty. Based on this new evidence, Gillespie returned to Atoll in June 2015, but operations were or using a remotely operated underwater vehicle to investigate a sonar direction of possible wreckage were hampered by technical problems. Well, fucking get in there, dude. Get in the water. You're already there. Right. I mean, <laughs> just roll your pants up. Oh, the up. robot doesn't work. We're leaving. <laughs> Further, a review of sonar data concluded it was most likely a coral ridge. The evidence remains circumstantial, but Earhart's surviving stepson, George Putnam Jr., has supported or expressed support for Tegar's research. Yeah. In 1998, an analysis of the measurement data by forensic anthropologists found instead that the skeleton had belonged to a a tall white female of Northern European ancestry. However, a 2015 review of both analysis concluded that the most robust scientific analysis and conclusions are those of the original British findings indicated that Nicaramu... What? Gardner Island. Yeah, bones belong <laughs> to a robust middle-aged man, not Amelia Earhart. So it could have been Noonan. Hello. But these are all like, yeah, 
true. There but was it's another like, person. But they, I feel like that's so like inconclusive. They just found bones and like I think it's from a man. Right. It could have been. It. So it's like, and the guy's like, I think this is from a five and a half foot person, five point yeah. five. But she was five and a five point eight inches. Right. So it's like that's fucking not that three inches. It's not. People have different sized bones. Some people have longer femurs. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't get that. In July 2017, a staff from the New England Air Museum notified Tigger that the unique... (laughs) Tigger? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) That the unique river pattern of the aluminum panel precisely matched the top of the wing of the C-47B in the museum inventory. Particularly significant since the C-47B crashed on a nearby island during World War II and the villagers acknowledged bringing aluminum from the wreck to Gardner Island. As of November 2018, Tigger has not published this new information. I feel like you're right there. Like you have so much information. You're just like, yeah. Yeah. We got other stuff to do. Uh-huh. It's like, what the fuck? Uh, 2018 study by American anthropologist Richard Jantz um, estimated the size of Earhart's skeleton based on photographs and reanalyzed the earlier data using modern forensic techniques. Based on the measure- measurements of 2,700 Americans who died in the mid 20th century, the study concluded that Earhart's bone measurements were more closely matched on the. They more closely matched the Gardner Island bones than 99% of reference samples. However, others criticized the study for being based on little factual evidence. The study did not attempt to dispute the original examiner's reinforced expert conclusions regarding the age of the bones, but acknowledges that Hoodless was qualified to make that assessment. Yet, despite the obvious errors, assumptions, and guesstimates in Jantz's research, Rick Gillespie, Tigar's headed director, appeared on BBC or World News shortly after the findings were announced to state, this is a quantification of data, not real science. Or this is real science. I'm sorry. Couldn't they just take bone marrow and, like, test it? You'd think so. I don't know how long that lasts. I don't either. 2019 examination of the skull reconstructed from bones purported to be among those discovered by the Gallagher search failed to conclude that the skull belonged to Amelia. The study concluded or conducted by a re-owned USF forensic anthropologist Aaron Kermley revealed that the skull was likely too small to be Earhart's and the DNA results were inconclusive. There you go. DNA. Likely too small, though. That's like... What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. It means nothing. The size comparison and the DNA data aired on October 2019 National Geographic TV special. Hmm. The sexton box found near the bones on Gardner Island and alleged to be belonged to Fred Noonan had two apparent serial numbers on it, 3500 and 1542. In October 2018, documents discovered that the National Archives and Records Administration showed USS Bushnell had a Brandis and Sons sexton with USNO serial number 1542 in 1938 to 1939, well after Earhart's disappearance. The Bushnell... Uh, USS Bushnell and U.S. Navy submarine tender that was assigned to the Hydro... Why am I having such a hard time? To Hydrographic Surveys in December 1937, visited Gardner Island and surveyed the island and its lagoon using sextons around November 1939, before the sexton box was discovered by Gallagher in September 1940. Hmm. A Brandis and Sons sexton with serial number 3500 would have been made around the time of World War I. Hmm. A few news articles have considered Tigar's theory and generally consider it the most plausible of the Earhart survive theories. 
Although not proven and not accepted beyond crash and sink, other news articles have criticized Tagore as seizing on unlikely possibilities as circumstantial evidence. For example, an article criticized the suggestion that a can of freckle ointment found on Gardner Island might have been Earhart's. Freckle ointment. Freckle ointment. When the Electra was virtually a flying gas station with little room for amenities, as Earhart and Noonan carried extra gas tanks in every scrap of available space and absence of any corroborating evidence connecting her that artifact to her. Maybe she just really cared about her freckles. Well, I mean, how much fucking... That could have been in a pocket. Yeah, I was going to say, how much... That doesn't take up any space. You can't put fuel in your pocket. <laughs> Not that I know of, anyway. In August 2019, ocean explorer Robert Ballard, who was found... Or who has found several ocean wrecks, including RMS Titanic. It's pretty good. That's a good one. That's a good on the resume. That is good. You can kind of, yeah. Do whatever you hang want. Hang your head on that one. Yep. Started researching for Earhart's aircraft off... Gardner Island's Reef. The search was funded by National Geographic Society. Ballard considered it was plausible that Bevington's 1937 photo shows landing gear. Ballard's expedition had more sophisticated search than Tigar used on its 2012 or used on its 2012 expedition. Wow. So it probably fucking was right there behind him in the goddamn picture. <laughs> yep. Ballard completed his expedition on October 2019 after days of searching the deep cliffs supporting the island and the nearby ocean using state-of-the-art equipment and technology. Ballard did not find any evidence of the plane or any associated wreckage of it. Allison Fundus, Ballard's chief operating officer of the expedition, stated, We felt like if her plane was there, we would have found it plenty early in the expedition. I'm sure. I mean... Mm -hmm. Julie Crone of reporting for the New York Times noted that the supposed landing gear in the Bevington photo had become a joke during the expedition. Oh, look, Dr. Ballard would chuckle. Another landing gear rock, she wrote. (laughs) Observing Robert Ballard's reaction to the rocks, his imaging equipment detected that the resemblance, uh, the object, I'm sorry, Observing Robert Ballard's reaction to the rocks, his imaging equipment detected that resembled the object in Bevington's photo. So they used equipment. They found out that it was just rocks. It Hmm. wasn't landing gear. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So the next one is the Japanese capture theory. Another theory is that Earhart and Noonan were captured by Japanese forces, perhaps after somehow navigating to somewhere within the Japanese South Sea Mandate. In 1966, CBS correspondent Fred Goner published a book claiming that Earhart and Noonan were captured and executed when their aircraft crashed off the island of Saipan, Mm. part of the northern Mariana Islands uh, archipelago. I think that's how you say that. Saipan is more than 2,700 miles away from Howland Island, however. That seems not realistic. No, it's pretty far. Later, but they could have been way not even close. Well, they were close because of the radio. I don't right. know. That seems, yeah, far-fetched. Later proponents of the Japanese capture hypothesis have generally suggested that the Marshall Island, or suggested the Marshall Islands instead, which while still distant from the intended location, 800 miles is slightly more possible. Yeah, that's, I could see that more than 2,700 if they were already running low on fuel. Yeah. In 1990, the NBC TV series Unsolved Mysteries, my mm. favorite, mm. Uh, broadcast an interview with a Saipanese woman who claimed to have witnessed Earhart and Noonan's execution by Japanese soldiers. Whoa. 
No independent confirmation have ever emerged from any of these claims. Various uh, reported photographs of Earhart during her captivity had been identified as either fraudulent or having been taken before her final flight. A slightly different version of the Japanese capture hypothesis is not the Japanese captured Earhart, but rather that they shot down her plane. I mean, that's about the time Pearl Harbor. I mean, I I could see that being a thing. Well, it was a little before. Yeah, I guess. Pearl Harbor was 1944. This was 1939. That's true. Maybe they just knew that those goddamn American planes (laughs) were bad news. But they were close. I don't know. That seems far-fetched to me. Henry Kaiser Andre, a former Pan Am pilot, propounded this view in his 1933 book, Age of Heroes, in Incredible Adventures of a Pan Am Pilot and His Greatest Triumph, Unraveling the Mystery of Amelia Earhart. It's a long title. It is. Must be a pretty big book to fit all that on the front page. (laughs) Since the end of World War II, a location of Tianian, which is five miles southwest of Saipan, had been rumored to be the grave of two aviators. In 2004, an archaeological dig at the site failed to turn up any bones. A recent proponent of this theory is Mike Campbell, who published the 2012 book Amelia Earhart, Airpart, that is not the name. <laughs> Earhart, the truth at last in its favor. Campbell cites claims from Marshall Islanders to have witnessed a crash, as well as a U.S. Army sergeant who found a suspicious gravesite near a former Japanese prison on Saipan. A number of Earhart's relatives have been convinced that the Japanese were somehow involved in Amelia's disappearance, citing unnamed witnesses including Japanese troops and Saipan natives. According to one cousin, the Japanese cut off the Lockheed Martin's, or cut the Lockheed Electra into scrap and threw pieces into the ocean to explain why the plane was not found. Um, to explain why the airplane was not found in the Marshall Islands. I feel like that would take a long time to cut up a whole plane. Yeah. In 2017, a History Channel documentary, Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, proposed that a photograph in the National Archives of Jalu Atoll in the Marshall Islands was actually a picture of a captured Earhart in Noonan. The picture showed a Caucasian male on a dock who appeared to look like Noonan and a woman sitting on the dock but facing away from the camera who was judged to have a physique and haircut resembling Earhart's. The documentary theorizes that the photo was taken after Earhart and Noonan crashed at Millie Atoll. The documentary also said that the physical evidence recovered from Millie matches pieces that could have fallen off an electra during a crash or subsequent overland move to a barge. The lost evidence proposed that a Japanese ship seen in the photograph was the Koshu Maru, a Japanese military ship. The lost evidence was quickly discredited, however, after Japanese blogger Koto Yamano found that the original search source of the photograph in the archives in the National Diet Library Digital Collection. The original source of the photo was a Japanese travel guide published in October 1935, implying that the photograph was taken in 1935 or before, and thus would be unrelated to Earhart and Noonan's 1937 disappearance. (laughs) Unless it's really them. Mm. Additionally, the researcher who discovered the photo also identified the ship in the right of the photo as another ship called Koshu, seized by Allied Japanese forces in World War One, and not the Kushu Marie. Maru. Maru. Marie. You said that so American. <laughs> the Koshu Marie. <laughs> A common criticism of all versions of the Japanese capture hypothesis is that the Japanese-controlled Marshall Islands were considerably distant from Howland Island. To reach and land there would have required Earhart and Noonan, 
the low on fuel, to change her northeast course as she neared Halland and fly hundreds of miles northwest, a feat not supported by basic rules of geography and navigation. Additionally, had the Japanese found a crashed Earhart and Noonan, they would have substantial motivation to rescue the famous aviators and be hailed as heroes. Yeah, no kidding. You're not going to shoot them. Yeah, but what if they don't speak the same language? How are you going to know this is Amelia Earhart? And you know they don't know fucking Morse code. True. Like, I feel, it's highly, I highly doubt that, like, people would see a crash plane and be like, oh, my God, you're those famous people. Like, but like, think about how many people were looking for them. Yeah, Everybody. but I'm saying if, like, but they did, probably didn't know about that. Yeah. These people were kind of cut off from everybody. Yeah. So they're not going to know famous people anyway. I don't know. Agree to disagree. All right, fucker. <laughs> Myths, legends, and claims. <clears throat> we're almost done here, people. Stick with us. Yeah, we're getting there. The unresolved. Nope. The un, yes, the unresolved, <laughs> unresolved circumstances of Earhart's disappearance, along with her fame, attracted a great deal of other claims relating to her last flight. For light, for light. <laughs> Several unsupported theories have been known in popular culture. Popular culture. <laughs> My lips really? are getting tired. Popular <laughs> culture. Spies for FDR. The World War II era movie, Flight for Freedom, is a story in which a fictional female aviator, obviously inspired by Earhart, who engages in a spying mission in the Pacific. The movie helped further a myth that Earhart was spying on the Japanese in the Pacific at the request of Franklin D. Roosevelt. By 1949, both the United Press and U.S. Army Intelligence had concluded that this the rumor was groundless. Um, yeah, they had to say that. Yeah, like, no, that's we what didn't, they said. We didn't do that we shit. We don't spy. No, not us. Jackie Cochran, another pioneering aviator of the and one of Earhart's friends, made a poster search of post-war. <laughs> man, we are we're our man. We're getting tired. My brain is fried. A post-war search of numerous files in Japan and was convinced that the Japanese were not involved in Earhart's disappearance. The poster. The post war. <laughs> post war. Man, that should be two words, I feel. Two words. <laughs> okay, Tokyo Rose. Here we go. A that rumor. sounds like a freaking nightclub. It is. The Tokyo Rose. We have an amber rose here. And a yellow rose. And a yellow rose. <laughs> a rumor that claimed that Earhart had made propaganda radio broadcasts as one of the many women compelled to serve as Tokyo Rose was investigated closely by George Putnam. According to several biographies of Earhart, Putnam investigated this rumor personally, but after listening to many recordings of numerous Tokyo Roses, he did not cons- recognize her voice among her. Rockinize. Rockinize. <laughs> and you know what? She don't know how to use no damn radio. True. She don't know about recording, broadcast. Obviously, she's not very good at it. Mm-mm. The next one is called New Britain. The theory that Earhart may have turned back mid-flight has been examined. She would have then tried to reach the airfield at Rab- Rabuel? New, Rabuel. Bri- New Britain, northeast of mainland Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea, approximately <laughs> 2,200 miles away from Howland. In 1990, Donald Angwin, a veteran of the Australian Army's World War II campaign in New Britain, contacted researchers to suggest that a wrecked aircraft he had witnessed in the jungle about 40 miles southwest of Rabaul. 
Rabbi you. Rabbi you. <laughs> on April 17, 1945, may have been Earhart's Electra. Angwin, who had been a corporal in the 11th Battalion at the time, reported that he and other members of a forward patrol on Japanese-occupied New Britain had found a wrecked twin-engine, unpainted, all-metal aircraft. The soldiers recorded a rough position on a map, along with serial numbers seen on the wreckage. The map was found in possession of another veteran in 1993, but subsequent searches of the area indicate to f- uh, indicated a fail to find a wreck. Hmm. So they just imagined How the this fuck plane? They went from 1945, and then they're like, oh yeah, we found it on a guy in 1993. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> they took down all this information, didn't report it, and then like, oh yeah, I got that. <laughs> it's the same as the guy losing a whole fucking skeleton. That's true. That How does that work? Of, that's, yeah. Engwin died in 2001. David Billings, an Australian aircraft engineer, has continued to investigate this theory. Billings claimed that the serial numbers written on the map, 600 HP S3HI CN1055, represent a 600 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R1340 S3H1 model engine, um, and the constructor's number 1055 was an airframe identifier. Hmm. These would have been consistent with a Lockheed Electra 10E, such as that flown by Earhart, although they do not contain enough information to identify the wreck in question as her plane. Huh. So it was the same model, but they can't say. Yeah. Pacific Wrecks, a website that documents World War II-era aircraft sites, notes that no Electra has been reported, lost, or in, in or around Papua New Guinea. Rick Gillespie of Tigger... (laughs) (laughs) reckons that based on Earhart's last (laughs) testament what what's funny he reckons he reckons take a reckons (laughs) based on Earhart's last estimated position somewhat close to Helen Island it is impossible for the aircraft to end up in New Britain 2,000 miles and a 13-hour flight away. No, there would not be enough gas. That's fucking far. 13 hours? 2,000 sounds not that far in the air but 13 hours really puts it in perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. Assuming another identity, <laughs> this is the one I'm going to get behind. In November 2006, the National Geographic Channel aired episode two of Undiscovered History series about a claim that Earhart survived the world world flight, moved to New Jersey, changed her name, remarried, and became Irene Craigmile Bolum. That's a terrible name. Pick a better name. I would, too. This claim had originally been raised in the book Amelia Earhart Lives in 1970 by author Joe Class. Claus. Claus. K-L-A-A-S. Sounds very German. Yep. Based on the research of Major Joseph Gervius, Irene (laughs) Bolum, who had been a baker... We're almost there. We're going to get through it. We've been a big year. In New York during the 1940s, denied being Earhart like you would if you were Earhart. Yeah. No, I ain't that. <laughs> she filed a lawsuit requesting $1.5 million in damages and submitted a lengthy affidavit in which she rebutted the claims. Hmm. $1.5 book- million in 1940? That's a lot. Jesus Christ. She was going hard. Holy shit. She was about to be set for several That's lifetimes. Insane. The book's publisher, McGraw-Hill, withdrew the book from the market shortly after it was released, and court records indicate that the company reached an out-of-court settlement with her, probably for $1 million. McGraw-Hill, they make all the textbooks. Uh-huh. Subsequently, Boland's personal life history was thoroughly documented by researchers, eliminating any possibility that she was Earhart. Mm. Kevin Richland, a professional criminal forensic 
expert hired by National Geographic studied photographs of both women and cited many measurable facial differences between Earhart and Bolum. So I don't really maybe think that this is her, but I could see her getting somewhere and being like, fuck this shit, I'm out. I don't. And, and then maybe so. her and Noonan were in love with each other. I, I could see. I was, then, I was just about to say, I don't see him like, because he would have had to give up his life too. Yeah. Screw it. But it's weird. Um, she doesn't seem like the in love kind of type from her whole like. No. She would want to fly. I yeah. feel like. She might not. If she took up another identity, I don't think she'd be able to not fly. No, she wouldn't be a banker. No. Who's a banker? Yeah. Not me. All right. Let's close it out with her legacy. Her was a widely known international celebrity during her lifetime. Her shyly charismatic appeal, independence, persistence, coolness under pressure, courage, and goal-oriented career with the circumstances of her disappearance at a comparatively early age has driven her lasting fame in popular culture. And the fact that she's disappeared, that helps. Yeah, her disappearance. Oh, yeah, right there. Right there. We just said it. In effect, she nobody's seen her. Nobody knows where she is. <laughs> Hundreds of articles and scores of books. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> that would have been a very short podcast. Amelia Earhart. Nobody knows where she is. Like, that's end. it. We'll see you next week. <laughs> she gone. She gone. Um, so hundreds of articles and scores of books have been written about her life, which is often cited as a motivational tale, especially for girls. Earhart is generally regarded as a feminist icon. Motivational tale. You too can disappear. <laughs> you can get lost all you on your own. You don't know how to do Morse code. <laughs> I can. See, I mean, she was powerful. She was. She was. Yes. She didn't Before. let men dictate her life. That's pretty cool. That's, that's like very badass. She's just like, I'm gonna yeah, marry you, but I don't even like you. I don't even and love I'm you. I'm not taking your last name because yeah. it's dumb. Yeah. Putnam. Putnam, what a fucking nerd. <laughs> Earhart's accomplishments in aviation inspired a generation of female aviators, including the more than 1,000 women pilots of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. That's fucking cool. WASP is cool. Who varied military aircraft, towed gliders, flew target practice aircrafts, and served as transport pilots during World War II. Hmm. Wow, 1,000 hmm. in World War II. That's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. WASP, man. The home was Air, where Earhart was born is now the Amelia Earhart Birthplace Museum <laughs> and is maintained by the 99s. Cool shirt. Shout out. An international group of female pilots of whom Earhart was the first elected president. <laughs> a small section of Earhart's Lockheed Electra starboard engine, Nessiel, recovered in the aftermath of the ni- March 1937 Hawaii crash, has been confirmed as authentic and is now regarded as a control piece that will help to authenticate possible future discoveries. Mm. The evaluation of the scrap metal was featured on an episode of History Detectives on Season 7 in 2009. Wow. Nothing since then, huh? Nope, that's it. Pretty so, amazing. That is pretty amazing. What it sucks. What a sad tale, though. Like, she yeah. was right there. Mm-hmm. That is, just could you imagine being it. the guy like she was talking to? Yeah, or being the guy in the back seat trying to navigate and he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> That's crazy, though. Could you imagine being the dude, the navigator who didn't go? Yeah, like, feel like, ooh, that dodged a me. bullet. Damn. Cite our sources. We didn't do this on the last episode, but I used wiki and pbs.org. There's a lot of um, websites out there for Amelia and all of the conspiracy theories that could be had. Mm-hmm. Um it's very, it's very tech, a lot of technical stuff going yeah, on, lots of radio stuff. But isn't it crazy how just one little thing 
makes you not be able to communicate, and then you, you don't, nobody knows where you are. Yep. It's terrifying. So what did we learn from this? Don't fly. Stay on the ground. Yes. That's it. No Morse code. No Morse code. Yep, that's right. That's true. Don't take out radio parts to not be heavy on the plane. Mm-hmm. Still need that stuff. Need it. Yep. That a lot of shit flies off the plane mm-hmm. whenever you're taxiing or landing or flying. We also learned search parties don't really search. They're more about taking pictures and then being <laughs> like, oh, about- I think that might be a plane. <laughs> They're all about the <laughs> selfies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about it. Amelia Earhart was a badass. She was. Gone too soon. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Whew, that was a long one. That was a long one. Sorry for Tired. all the technical mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, we were, we were starting to get, like, mush mouth at the end. Uh-huh. I can't even say mush mouth. I said mush mouth. Moosh. Mush mouth. The moosh. Okay, well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. This concludes Amelia Earhart Part mm-hmm. 2. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back at you next week with something exciting. Y'all. Okay. Have a good week, y'all. See you next time. Burr. Burr.